0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, first book in the Bible. And they are pew Bibles. If you don't have one in front of you, we'd like you to get your eyes right in the text. So whether on your phone or wherever you have it in the your own Bible, but uh, we want your eyes on the text. Genesis 16. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, And gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her.
1: Unmute myself here. I want to begin our time this morning with a question. I want you to remember what your life was like 25 years ago, if you can. What you were doing, where you were living, how old you were. I was nine years old in the fourth grade, uh, approximately two feet shorter than I am now. Some of you in here can't even remember what life was like 25 years ago because you weren't born yet, (laughs) which gets to the point that it's a long time. 25 years is a long time, and it's the exact time that Abram and Sarai waited between the moment that God promised them a child and the moment that they held Isaac in their arms. And what makes the weight and the promise all the more remarkable, as you know if you've been following along in Genesis with us, is that God gave this promise when Abram was 75 years old and Sarai 65 years old. So they were no spring chickens. And the question that I want us to consider this morning is how do you keep trusting God in seasons of long and painful waiting? How do you keep believing God's promises when all around you, all you can see is your present pain? Our own situations probably are really different from Abram and Sarai's. As far as I know, there are no 90-year-olds still waiting for a child in here. But there are people in here who feel confused. Confused by where they are in life, and by what God is doing. There are some in here who who wonder why God has allowed you to wait in a painful season for so long. And there are some people who know the feeling, maybe right now, know what it feels like to have present pain feel like it overshadows the promises of God. It feels more real than what God has said. And I'm asking, how do we wait for God well there in those kinds of moments, however big, grand scale, or seemingly small? And the main thing that I want us to walk away with this morning, which will be played out in our passage, is that waiting well for God is a matter of finishing your sentences with faith. Faith. Waiting well for God is a matter of finishing your sentences with faith. God invites us to look around at our life, to feel deeply all that feels, all the pain, all that is sorrowful, all that is confusing, and then to express that both to him and to others, to express the doubt, confusion, sorrow. But then faith does something in that moment. It takes where we are in the pain and turns us to be able to say, and yet I will trust you still, and yet I will hope in you, and yet I will wait for you no matter what tomorrow may bring. We're going to see this from our story, but it's actually going to come in a pretty roundabout way because Abram and Sarai do not walk in faith, if you were listening at all. It's a pretty wild story. And it's a surprising one because if you've been tracking along with their life, the last several weeks, Abram's faith has been growing and growing. And then this passage, chapter 16, really as a whole, is kind of like walking up a staircase. You know this feeling? And you step for another one and you lunge forward because it's actually not there. The staircase is over. It's kind of what chapter 16 is like. It's a lunge. We don't expect this story given what we've seen of Abram and Sarai's life. And yet God includes it out of mercy as a warning in part to show us what happens, what it looks like when we don't finish sentences with faith, when we allow present confusion, present pain to lead us away from the Lord rather than toward him. But I think, along with a warning, by the end of our time, we're going to come away with some hope and help for our own struggles to believe. So with that, let's look at the story. We're going to move through this short story, just six verses. We're going to take it in four scenes, brief scenes. We're going to look at the setting, the suggestion, the fall, and the fallout. Setting, suggestion, fall, fallout. So setting. Look with me, if you will, at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant, whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Pause there for a moment. So as as we've discussed, Abram and Sarai, they've received this promise that they're going to bear children that are going to turn into a great nation, bless all the nations in the world. And verse three is going to tell us, if you look ahead there, that they're actually 10 years into the weight that God has led them into. So God made the promise 10 years prior. Abram is now 85, Sarai 75, and they still have no child. By the end of the passage, Sarai is going to say some stuff, going to do some stuff that's pretty sad, pretty sinful. But before we get there, just linger for a moment, I want you to imagine what she may have felt like 10 years into this wait. Can you imagine the disappointment, the potential disillusionment of waiting month after month for one year, two years, three years, 10 years? Only to find yourself still without a child, still with an empty womb. Can you imagine how ashamed she may have felt? Infertility was a badge of dishonor in that culture, and here she is, as uh, old enough to be a grandmother, and she has no kids of her own. Can you imagine how even silly perhaps she may have felt, trying to tell other people that she was still expecting a child? Some of you in here, some of us, don't need to imagine that much, because even though the situations are different, you're in the middle of your own painful weight, and you know what it feels like, maybe not for 10 years, but for a long time, to feel your hopes rise and your hopes fall, to feel your heart fill, and to feel your heart break. You have your own version of Sarai's sentence in verse two. She says, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Behold now, the Lord has not yet given me a family. Behold now, the Lord has not yet saved this loved one. Behold now, the Lord has not yet answered this prayer. And yet behind this mysterious and dark season of waiting is so clearly the plan and purpose of God. This 25-year wait was the doing of the Lord, was it not? <laughs> he was not hindered. If he's going to overcome barrenness and give an older woman a child, he can do it any time. It's not getting easier. He could have promised when Sarai was 65 and then given the son the next month. He could have waited one year. He could have waited 10 years and given the child now. Instead, He promised Abram and Sarai, and then he led them into this 25-year wilderness of waiting. It wasn't an accident. And in a way, that observation is strangely comforting. Because one of the hardest parts of our longest and most painful seasons is, is the sense that God is no longer near. That his love is no longer present and heavy upon us. That his plans for our welfare have fallen and failed. And yet, those who read this story, read the life of Abram and Sarai, there's no doubt that God loves them. No doubt that he's for them. No doubt that he's with them at every stage of this 25 year wait. And so, if God loved them and yet still led them through this wilderness of waiting, then it shows, it's a sign, a tip. He has good purposes, kind purposes in the hardest seasons, even if, like Abram and Sarai in this passage, we cannot see them yet, or maybe just barely see them. Sometimes we get glimpses. You might know what this is like. You can remember something like this. Personally, for me, some of the greatest spiritual growth has happened in seasons of unwanted waiting, sometimes seasons that I desperately wanted to end. We learn things in seasons that are longer than we thought they would be, harder than we thought they would be, that are really hard to learn any other way. We learn how to pray. We learn what it is to say, not my will, but yours be done. We learn to lean not on our own understanding, but on the Lord's. We learn the secret that the great treasure in this world is not ultimately what God gives, but who God is. And yet, seasons of waiting are also surrounded on every side with danger. It is one of the most spiritually dangerous places to be because it is so easy to subtly, slowly start to grow bitter toward God and justify sin that way. So easy to look around at other people and feel envy because they're in a different spot than you are. So easy to become blind to all the ways the Lord is presently blessing us because we only have eyes for that one thing. For the, for the thing we're waiting for at the end of this wait. And it can feel really hard to finish sentences with faith. Far easier to look for a quick fix, something, anything that will release some of the pain of where we are. Sarah felt that. She felt what that was like. And so look with me now. At verse two, this is moving us now to the second scene, the suggestion. Verse two says, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Sarai feels time stretching on. She feels her body getting older, her chances of pregnancy getting smaller and she looks around and sees her servant Hagar and she thinks maybe i can have a child by her basically she suggests to abram that he practice polygamy in order to fulfill god's promise which if you slow down to think about it and imagine like someone doing that today it's like whoa this is wild As strange as it sounds to us, uh, and it should sound strange, is actually a somewhat common part of the culture of the time. Like, not unheard of. It's not like Sarai is just reaching for this out of nowhere. This kind of surrogate motherhood, it actually happened. People did this. It was a way, a certain way of building up your family, having children by another woman. It was one of those really dangerous Practices that was uh, so woven into the culture, so common, just such the air you breathe that even God's people struggled to see it as wrong. Similar things are alive today, and yet, both Sarai and Abram should have known better. They should have known that God didn't mean to fulfill His promise that way, not by polygamy. If you just look at the stories in Abram and Sarah's life, every one of God's dealings with them is meant to show that he doesn't need the ways of the world in order to fulfill his promise. He doesn't. If he can hand them the land of Canaan (laughs) with a small amount of people, if he can give them victory in war with a small army, if he can count Abram righteous and accepted before him simply by faith, then he can overcome barrenness. That's not a problem. He doesn't need the ways of the world in order to fulfill his own promises. Maybe most striking, though, if you just pay attention to the details of this passage, is Hagar herself. Did you notice where she's from? The narrator goes out of his way twice to mention that Hagar is from Egypt. Verse 1, she had a female Egyptian servant. Verse 3, Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian. Why would the narrator do that? Mention that twice. The last time we saw Egypt was in chapter 12 of Genesis. Do you remember this story? Abram and Sarai are recently in Canaan. There's a famine in the land. The situation is somewhat similar to this one. There's, there's this hard situation, and what Abram and Sarai do is they rely on Egypt. They go down to Egypt, leave the land that God brought them to, told them to go to, in order to find food. So instead of waiting on the Lord in the place where he brought them, they try to rely on Egypt in order to keep his promises alive. And here in chapter 16, they are doing the very same thing. There's another painful situation, and instead of waiting on God in faith, they are, as it were, going to Egypt again. So whereas they should have looked at Hagar, knew she was an Egyptian, and thought, do you remember how God (laughs) was faithful to us, even when we did that that silly thing, even when we failed in our faith? I don't know how he's going to give us a child, but let's trust him. (laughs) He can do it. Instead... They see Hagar, the Egyptian, and they try to rely on Egypt again instead of waiting. When we feel ourselves pressed down by our own painful circumstances, one of the hardest things to do is to patiently and intently look behind us and remember the faithfulness of God in the past and then continue waiting for him in the present. And one of the easiest things to do is to look for a quick fix and if Abram and Sarai's story says anything about us and what we're tempted to do which it does then all of us are likely prone to go to some of the very same quick fixes we've tried in the past the very same things that we have gone to that have proved bitter in the end and yet we nevertheless try to go to again we have our own version of Egypt even if it looks different do you know what yours are? Do you know what your quick fixes are? Those those things that you go to when the trouble stays longer than it feels like you have endurance to bear. When for whatever reason you wake up like Sarah did on this day and feel like, I'm just done. I'm done with this weight. Do you know where you go? Where you're tempted to go? Do other people know? Do your roommates know? Does your spouse know? Does your DNA know? Maybe it's food or alcohol. So common. Maybe it's the more internal stuff of fantasies or daydreams of the life you wish you had. Maybe it's endless phone scrolling and obsessive entertainment. Maybe it's one that I go to often, so respectable, so godless, prayerless productivity and self-reliance. Just get stuff done, feel good by checking things off. We need to know where we go, where we're tempted to go, because quick fixes are really quick in more ways than one. They quickly release pressure, and then they quickly fail. They quickly leave us in a worse place than we were before. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the story. So let's move on now from suggestion to fall, scene three. Look with me at the end of verse two. And Abram listened To the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. One of the remarkable parts of the book of Genesis is how the author so skillfully echoes previous parts of the story in order to get his point across. And in this story in particular, it's unmistakable the ways he's echoing Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. The words Abram listens to the voice of Sarai are an almost exact match of what God says to Adam in Genesis 3.17. Ver, um, verse 3, when it says that Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian and gave her to Abram, her husband, is just like Genesis 3.6, where it says that Eve took the fruit and gave some to her husband who was with her. And then beyond the wording, you can just see the parallels. Just like Eve, Sarai is taking control, seizing control of the situation instead of waiting on the Lord. And Abram, meanwhile, just like Adam, is passively watching his family fall apart. It's just a reenactment. It's a repeat of Genesis 3 of the fall in the garden, which is remarkable because Abram and Sarai had no idea. It's, It's not like they were thinking, oh, we're back in... This is just like Genesis 3, we gotta watch out. They didn't know, they didn't see it. It was so subtle. It looked so seemingly permissible, so culturally acceptable. And yet there were warning signs. And they are the same warning signs that were there in Genesis 3, they are the same warning signs that often precede our own falls. There are many, one of them is simply that Abram and Sarai seem to have become so fixed on the one thing that they did not have. They were so focused on the one great lack in their life, the one great missing piece, that for a moment at least, they became blind to the faithfulness of God behind them, blind to the promises of God ahead of them, and blind to the presence of God with them. Do you know what that feels like? Just wake up. There it is. Lie down in bed. There it is. That one thing, you're just finding yourself, thinking about it more and more. It becomes harder to simply linger in the Lord's presence and praise him for who he is and what he's done. Life just becomes narrowed in on this forbidden tree, on this son who's not there, on this thing that you wish were different. There's an even more concerning warning sign, which is that Sarai and Abram, they seem to have moved through this decision so fast that they didn't even stop to pray. You see that? The action in this story is just so swift, just like the garden. Sarai has a suggestion. She speaks it. Abram listens. They sin. Boom, 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 boom. Nowhere do we read, and Abram and Sarai called upon the Lord And Sarai and Abram prayed and consulted with God and went slowly on something so big too. It's as if in this story, God barely exists in Abram and Sarai's frame of reference. He's almost no part of this story. And as I was thinking about this passage, I am sobered to think of how many scenes in my own life could be told in the same way the same kind of fashion. Here's one from this past week. Scott felt stressed by his responsibilities. He bore down and focused on things. He ignored other people and didn't engage. And by the end of the day, he felt more stressed and he did not pray. Prayerless speed, you know what that feels like? Just prayerless speed is a really big warning sign that a fall is coming. Often, see if this resonates with you, my refusal to pray in moments when I need to is a sign that I kind of want to do something that on some level I know is wrong and I don't want to slow down long enough because I know I'll realize it's wrong. But how often would a cycle of sin stop if we stopped to pray for a few minutes? Prayer is like a speed bump that slows us down on the road of sin, helping us realize where we're going Prayer is like a friend that meets us on the path of danger and takes us by the hand and reasons with us and gently brings us back to where we ought to be. The pastor Martin Lloyd Jones once said that the quickest way to quench the spirit is to not obey an impulse to pray. So when you find yourself moving so quickly and there's a little voice, even faint, in the back of your head that's saying, Pray, pray, ask for prayer, it's a friend, not an enemy. It's a friend welcoming you back to life. Because prayerless speed is a sign that a fall is coming. And when there is a fall, there's going to be a fall out, which is the last scene here. Scene four, the fallout. Look with me at verse four. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So Abram follows Sarai's suggestion, and it doesn't take long. It's really quick before the plan goes poorly, really poorly. In the culture, when this kind of thing happened, when polygamy like this was practiced, the the servant wife, like Hagar, was supposed to have a lower status than the main wife, Sarai, in this case. But when Hagar conceives immediately after Sarai's, you know, decades of waiting, she looks at Sarai with utter contempt, and she begins to treat Sarai as if she's the servant wife, not Hagar. She despises her. And Abram, when Sarai doesn't recognize the role that she's played in it, but instead just talks to Abram again, what does Abram do? He just does the same thing he did before. Continues passively, basically gives Sarai free reign to treat Hagar terribly, which she does, and the scene ends really sadly with Hagar running away. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but what I want us to notice is One thing in particular. If you wanted to uh, structure this passage, just break it down, how's it work? One of the ways you could do it is by looking at these two very similar cycles of sin. So, verses one to four, you have a painful situation, Sarai's suggestion, Abram's passivity, and Hagar's contempt. And then in the second half of the passage, you have a painful situation again, Sarai's complaint this time. Abram's passivity and Hagar's flight. It's just a very similar structure of events. Pain, Sarai, Abram, Hagar. And the thing to notice here is how Abram and Sarai's attempt to get themselves out of the first painful situation only ushered them into a second painful situation worse than the first. Because not only is Hagar's son not the child of promise, so they didn't even solve the problem that they were trying to solve, But now Abram has two wives instead of one. And Sarai and Hagar hate each other. And Abram and Sarai are at odds. So you begin the passage with these relationships that are peaceful and well ordered. And you end the passage with relationships that are fractured and hostile. It's a mess, a total mess. And it's a warning, it's a sober warning for us. When we find ourselves in a painful spot, and it feels like some quick fix would bring relief, and we're tempted to no longer finish sentences with faith, if we refuse to go on waiting and trusting in the Lord, it's only going to usher us into greater distress and deeper confusion in the end. It may feel like the hardest thing in the world to go through another day trusting and waiting upon God. It may feel like the most painful thing to do. It's not as painful as not waiting on him and not trusting in him. It may feel like some quick sin would bring the relief that we ache for. It doesn't compare to the relief that God is storing up for those who wait for him. So, those are the four scenes. The setting, suggestion, fall, fallout. Now I want to think just for brief time more about what we take away, what we respond in addition to what we've talked about already. So just a couple of final applications for us. The first one may sound a little surprising given the passage, but if you pay attention to the story of Abram, the broad story beyond this particular scene and the story of Abram and Sarai as it's told throughout the rest of the scriptures, you come away with some serious hope, (laughs) like some really serious hope. If you look in the New Testament, you'll find the names of Abram and Sarai mentioned quite a few times, actually. Uh, Abram is over 70 times his name is mentioned. And this story with Hagar is mentioned just one time, and kind of in passing, it's not the main point. So every other time Abram and Sarai's names are mentioned, it's positive. And in fact, they are even held up explicitly as models of faith. Hebrews 11 says, Sarai considered God faithful, who promised. Romans 4 said Abram didn't weaken in faith as he considered the promise of God, but he gave glory to God, which is a little strange given Genesis 16. What do we take away from it? What are we supposed to learn from it? (laughs) We learn first that God is patient, really patient. God is more patient than we often think. He knows that our progress in the Christian life is not a smooth, straight line that we don't always trust him as time goes on from one day to the next more than we did before. Sometimes we can talk about growth in Christ that way. We trust God every day a little bit more than the day before. It's not what always happens. Sometimes we can trust him really, really a lot, and then the next week, really a little. Someone once told me that if you were to chart Christian growth over time, it would kind of look like someone playing a yo-yo while walking upstairs. Okay? Okay. So you're going up, but a lot of that. There's some really disappointing dips within this general upward progression. And therefore, if you find yourself in one of those dips, weak in faith, on the heels of a failure or in the pit of a failure, then don't lose hope. Don't despair. Don't think that because you've gotten yourself into this mess that you might as well just keep on sinning. When you feel stuck in last night or last week, God is able to see months and years. And who you are becoming in Christ is more significant to him than what happened within the short time frame that we often remember. Therefore, even the worst failures, even the worst failures do not need to define you. (laughs) And what to do instead of wallowing is to get up and keep repenting and keep believing the promises of God and keep stepping toward him, as Abram and Sarai did after this passage. Not only will it be forgiven, but the scriptures talk about God forgetting our sins. That's a little picture of what is happening in the New Testament. It's like this story is not only forgiven, it's forgotten. What's brought up is the broad sweep of God's work in Abram and Sarai, That's what we brought up. That's what will be most significant in our lives as well. And then we learn not only that God is patient, but we learn that the greatest hope we have in this life is not our faith, but God's faithfulness. The greatest hope we have is not our faith, but God's faithfulness. Do you remember last week? God makes this covenant with Abram, and it's a very strange covenant ceremony. You can listen to Pastor Sam's message if you haven't heard it yet. But basically, God is pledging, he's promising that he himself will maintain the covenant, fulfill the covenant, uphold the covenant, that he will remain faithful even when Abram's faith fails. And I know that sort of thing is easy to say, like, not my faith, God's faithfulness. It can feel so hard when you find yourself in the wreckage of some sin to believe that God will still be faithful, that he is not only will be faithful in the future, but is faithful right now. Will he? Will he still be faithful if you refuse to trust him again, if that's where you find yourself? Will he still be faithful if you have gone to the same old place, the same old Egypt, just like Abram and Sarai did in this passage? the place where you know there's no hope. He's told you that before. The story is here to say yes. Yes, if you turn back every time from failure and if you receive his mercy freshly and if you look away from your weak faith to his strong faithfulness, he will remain faithful to you all your days. So our hope is not in our faith, strong or weak as it may feel, but in the Lord's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. Because there is a man who walked through this life without ever failing in faith. There's a man who went through greater pain than you have felt, than I have felt, than Abram or Sarai has felt, who faced the fury of hell and yet still finished every single sentence with faith. There's a man who found himself on the way to the cross and even there when he could have gone whichever which way he wanted refused every quick fix refused every out and instead died saying father into your hands i commit my spirit he died with faith even if he may have felt forsaken at times So our great hope, church, is not our faith in God, but God's faithfulness to us. Because Jesus lived and died with perfect faith, he's able to forgive every single failure of faith that we feel along the way. And the more that we bank on it, the more that we rest on it, the more that we lean into the Lord's own faithfulness to us, the more that our faith is going to look increasingly like our Lord's, like Jesus's. So imagine yourself now in a similar position to, to Sarai at the beginning of this passage. Where she says, behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Behold, the Lord has put me in a mind-numbing job. Behold, the Lord has allowed this sickness to linger. Behold, the Lord has brought me into a deeply dark season, and I don't know a way out. What if, instead of looking only at the pain of this present moment, you looked up to God in patient prayer? And what if you not only looked up to God, but you looked back and lingered in thinking about how faithful he's been to you, how much steadfast love he has shown to you in Christ? And what if you not only looked up and looked back, but you looked forward to his promises, some big, big, audacious promise that he makes to you in Jesus, that he won't leave you or forsake you, that he won't withhold any good thing from you as you walk uprightly, then you might finish your sentence with faith. Say, behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children, but I know he's good and does good. The Lord has put me in a mind-numbing job, but I know that he's with me and for me as I go into my shifts today. The Lord has let this sickness linger, but I know he will heal me. If not here, then in heaven. The Lord has brought me into a dark season and I don't know the way out, but I know that those who wait for him won't be put to shame, and so I will still wait for him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that your faithfulness is always all the time because you do not change. We change all the time. We are different this week than we were last week. We're different this minute than we were last minute even. We're fickle and our faith rises and falls and your faithfulness does not. Thank you, Father, that you are steady, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I pray that you would give us grace, eyes to see. You have never left us or forsaken us and you will never. And especially for those in here who feel themselves just so deep in a season they want to leave. Would you give grace today to wait upon you and to speak faith back to you? We pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.